Thanks very much, guys. I'll let you just wrap up your prayers in the next minute or so. And my wife, um, Jess, is going to read out a passage to kick us off tonight. Um, our reading tonight is from Ezra 3, chapter, 10, um, oh, chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. And it says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. I'll keep that handy. That's um, Ezra 3 verse 10 to 13 if anyone's wanting to read along. Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> it's good to be here. Um, as I said before, my name's Angus. Um, it's my wife, Jess, and my daughter, Afie. She's running around. She's nearly two now. Uh, another one on the way in April. I don't know everyone here, so I thought I'd just introduce myself a little bit. I'm a maths teacher. I probably lost some credibility right there with um, anyone under the age of 20, maybe even over 20. I don't know. Um, but I do love Rivers um, Church. Um, I love how authentic it is here. I love Rivers' heart for worship and the unassuming posture that Rivers has before God and others. Um, I love how Rivers plays a part in bringing unity um, to local churches and it, and it always has and it serves with humility it's got a massive emphasis on youth which is awesome the food hampers that get sent out every week and the huge emphasis that it has on prayer here as well um, I love how Rivers has shaped me and taught me and, and loved me at times in my life when I've most needed it and it's often been a place where I've come to heal um, Rivers Church Came here a bit around 10 years ago, maybe longer than that, 10 or 13 years ago even. Uh, and then after being in other local communities like Mueller and LifePoint, um, I've come back um, with my wife Jess over the last 12 months. There's a certain weight to speaking the first message in a, a decade. Like sometimes you get the first in a sermon series or first in a year, but the first in a decade, I feel like um, I felt like at first it needed to be a bit party, 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 celebrate, set goals, all that sort of thing. Um, but I'm not going to do that. A lot can change in a decade. Uh, I don't know if anyone here participated in the 10-year challenge um, on, on Facebook or Instagram where you found a picture of yourself uh, 10 years ago and compared it to yourself now. Um, that brought to my attention how much has changed in, in me in a decade. I was in a band at the time um, with, with an afro and a patchwork jacket and wore a scarf while I played as well. Um, uh, Mueller was an in-the-meantime job, still there. Um, just to fund the music, you know. Um, and I lived in a brick box at Shaftesbury Campus, a one-bedroom brick box. They're still there. I don't think they rent them out anymore, but good cheap rent um, for someone making a start in life. Also, in life, a lot of my spiritual formation has happened over the last 10 years. I think I've had some serious questions about my faith, been to multiple home groups, have wrestled with the place of Scripture, the relevance of church, what to expect um, what it means to live in the Holy Spirit. But most of these things, I think, are normal things for a thinking, hungry believer uh, in the present reality of today's Christianity. 
um, up there with one of the most significant formational groups was a small group run by a couple of men at Rivers, and they really helped me to receive God's love and God's father heart um, for me as well in coming here. Um, But all of my searching that I went through in the last decade, when I think about it, was simply a quest for meaningfulness in spiritual reality. But what it sprang from and the questions and the drive, what it all sprang from was a disparity between what I read in Scripture, what's talked about and what's promised, and my present experience of life as a Christian. The hunger is often driven by that gap between what I read about and what's promised. I'd find myself delving into Scripture, attending every home group um, from many different streams, but mostly Protestant, Protestant Christianity, to hear what everyone was saying to make sure I wasn't missing out on something. Because for whatever reason, I live with the conviction that this can't be all that Christ intended for us. When I consider the great cost that Jesus paid and examine the life Scripture describes, I've concluded that Jesus can't have done all of that for, for this, for my experience of him. We know that fulfillment comes in heaven one day, and that's what he purchased on the cross. But I'm not referring to just one day in the future, but today. There has to be more intended for Christian living than my current experience of it. The more I dug into Scripture and, and sought to read the whole and not just the highlights, I had to conclude that Jesus and the apostles had an exceedingly excellent hope for the spiritual reality of the church this side of eternity. Yeah, we all know that one day it's going to be awesome. We'll be the bride of Christ. We'll receive the inheritance. We'll come into perfection. We'll know fully. And and we talk about the old days, the good old days of the New Testament, the power of the Spirit, the, the new Holy Spirit heart that they were filled with. People were known by their love. There was unity in the church. People lived for a common good of one another. They laid down their possessions. But, and this seed, the seed of the church grew into a tree and that tree upended and permeated the most powerful empire on earth, the Roman Empire. The pride of humanity was humbled by Christ through humble loving service of the saints. And I, I look at what God's called us to one day in heaven and what he had in the, in the old days uh, as well in the New Testament, not always perfect. And I just think surely there's a lot that's still the plan for these days. And so I guess I, I'm discerning a gap. I'm not sure if everyone sees it that way, but I do. I do see a gap between how things are and how things called to be. And, and that gap is really important. Uh, the measure of your spiritual hunger can be somewhat attributed to how you think we're going in relation to what you think has been promised. Or to put it another way, your hunger can be somewhat determined by how your spiritual reality compares with your spiritual expectations. Um, if our spiritual expectations are down here and our spiritual reality is down there, uh, you can, we won't actually be very hungry for very much, but you might actually be pretty happy because you're like, I'm not expecting much. I didn't get much. Life's as it should be. Okay, um, I'm, not, I'm not missing out on something. But if your expectation is up here, but your reality, you don't view it as high as up there. The measure of that gap between expectation and how you soberly judge your current experience of God, I think is what gives people a hunger in God. It can lead to discontentment, a holy discontent perhaps, in our spiritual walk, the gap between how things are said to be and how things are. So this puts me in a sense of wanting to cry out for more 
and a sense of crying out for more has sometimes felt like it's not a huge priority in the church as a whole. Sometimes we've felt uncomfortable asking God for more as though it's insulting him or an admission of lack. I'll just read this passage from Ezra 3 verse 10 again. Just one little bit. I just found it really fascinating. I was reading it um, on the holidays uh, just recently um, in Cambodia just to make it sound cooler. Um, And maybe on a plane. All the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because there was so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Interesting that the same response to the temple was both shouts of joy from some and a weeping out loud from others. And I want to unpack that just a tiny bit. It's obvious why people would be celebrating. The temple's just been laid. Everybody loves a new building program. All right? Israel's going places. Things are moving forward. There's a sense of momentum. We've got a foundation. The progress can actually be seen. I think that's why we like buildings. A lot of the time in people work, like teaching, you get home and you think, what did I accomplish today? You can't see the new algebra cognitions in students' minds. But in building, you actually achieve something. The progress is visible. Yes, they'd only laid a foundation, but it stood for something. They were celebrating the fact that they had made some progress, though the temple was yet incomplete and not functioning properly. And we should, as Christians, celebrate our small steps of progress, our baby steps. When Afia was learning to walk, I didn't blame her when she fell over or blame Jess saying, my side of the family can all walk. You must have got that from your mother. I celebrated every small step that she made on her way to being a mature walker. Runs everywhere now, actually. Uh, the restore, they were also celebrating the restoring of a place of cultural and spiritual significance. For Israel, they worshipped at a place, not anywhere. And for them... They hadn't, known, um, they hadn't known that in 70 years. They hadn't had a place to worship God culturally and spiritually. Now, there's an interesting distinction between those who celebrated and those who wept. And it says that those who celebrated hadn't known the reality of the former temple. That increased the amount to which they celebrated. The less they knew the former temple, the lower their expectation the more they erupted in praise. These that celebrated hadn't known the old temple, so they were happy because they were comparing the new foundation with no foundation and not the former or future foundation. So why are some people weeping out loud? I mean, Israel's making progress here. The people that wept out loud were the old, old, old people. Always, not always so dramatic, but the old people were all weeping so loud. These people had seen something. They'd seen Solomon's temple in all of its glory. And the new temple was not comparable. They weren't on the same scale. We can read scripture as Christians. And it's important that we don't just compare our current Christianity with what happened last week. But when we look back into the New Testament, we look at the promises of the future. We can see the glory that is promised. And we are a temple of living stones that Christ is building and we are called to be something exceedingly excellent 
The other reason some people wept was they had lived their whole lives estranged from the temple. The deepest part of their cultural and spiritual heritage was not intact. There would have been a deep sense of loss there. There was a generation that missed out circumstantially, circumstantially on what it meant to be God's chosen people. There would have been a deep sense of loss there. They were the ones that had the sins of their fathers visited upon them, unlucky. There was a heavy sense of regret over what had been done and a sense of loss um, was palpable. So much so that they wept and they cried out to be the generation that missed out on hosting the presence of God. And I just want to say that I think both expressions have a legitimate place, the weeping and the celebration in our faith. And sometimes we can get the impression um, that it's only happy-go-lucky Christianity that is legitimate. I believe both expressions are legitimate in the expression of our faith today. Shouts for joy and weeping out loud can coexist, intermingle and be indistinguishable from one another. And both can be full of hope. A shout for joy is a celebration of what's happened and a display of thanks over what's currently experienced. But when I talk about weeping, I'm not just talking about a pity party. I'm talking about crying out in prayerful faith. Weeping can also be fueled by hope, not despair. It's a hope that God has so much more and still has so much more in store than our current accomplishments. Weeping can be rooted in genuine hope, yet unfulfilled in the promises of God. And weeping can be a sign that someone possesses greater hope than one that only ever celebrates. We feel good when we celebrate. We like to do it often. It's right and respectful and good to show our gratitude to God for what He has already done. We can feel rude or um, like presumptuous when we don't feel like celebrating because God's done so much for us. We can almost feel as though it's faithless to stop celebrating. But the reality is that Jesus and His closest would cry out, sometimes in great anguish, in the pains of childbirth for deliverance into what was promised for those around them to have Christ form within them. I'm going to get to, don't worry, I'm going to get to some reasons to celebrate, but celebration gets a lot of airtime in church. Um, so I want to put forward some reasons to cry out. I can call it weep, but when I say weep, I mean cry out in prayer. Because I think sometimes pe- people perceive themselves, I have, to be a lesser Christian if I'm upset by my current spiritual reality. When a path that Scripture outlines for spiritual growth is to bring that discontentment before God in the soil of humility and by grace through faith, God can begin to resurrect something worth celebrating about in us. And in that way, God gets all the glory. Personally, I've wrestled with being prone to cry out before feeling like celebrating. When I consider the weightiness of the calling God has for us, The experience that I have is hopeless inadequacy and a very deep and real need for God to resurrect Christ within me and to begin to even take those baby steps in the direction He's called me. I'm not crushed by the call to holiness by any means. I'm just increasingly, as I get older, agonizingly and acutely aware of my strong need for grace and if my life is going to make anything of Christ. In fact, I can often be overwhelmed by the reasons I have to cry out and disoriented by my own lack of prayer in light of the conclusions I've drawn about the present state of my Christian life. My heart breaks constantly over the disparity of the church's high calling and the reality of her present function. 
I'm grief stricken in anguish sometimes over this and it makes it hard to function like a like a normal human being or happy all is well churchgoer that I feel we've been stereotyped to be at times um, somewhat unintentionally as an ideal I find myself driven by hunger to think there has to be more than this we're called to be the light of the world we carry the answer a broken world is crying out for some things that I cry out for in myself are the love in my life am I known by it does I do I look like Christ crucified do others see it? The power of God available. Do I walk in the gifts of the fruit of the Spirit? The character of Christ, His humility, love that crucified Himself, His nature, is that alive in me? Do I have a wellspring of living water welling up within me unto eternal life? Are people often asking me to give reason for the hope that's within me? Do I argue over trivial things? Have I experienced ongoing victory over temptation? If your answer like me is no, then weeping and crying out in prayer, I think, is a legitimate response if I believe what I'm called to have and compare it to my current experience. Weeping in prayer is a fruit of faith, a fruit of hope, and we can only have a few reasons. Uh, I can think of a few reasons why I wouldn't cry out in prayer, just three reasons why I might not cry out in prayer. Firstly, no expectation. I fail to see the heights to which I'm called I'm not looking at the glory of what's promised in Scripture or the glory of what's promised in the future as a present hope. I'm looking at last week or next week or this church or that Christian, not to Christ, the author and perfecter. Number two, maybe I do see that expectation, but I fail to see my own shortcomings. Um, I believe I'm actually there in the present fullness. And thirdly, maybe I fail, to, maybe I can see the heights of our calling and I can see my present shortcomings. But I fail to have believing hope that God wants to work the miracle of Christ resurrected in us. To not weep would be to not see more. To not weep would be to not expect more. And to not weep would be to not hope for more. To only ever celebrate would be a sign that I have all that I expect to have. There is a place, and I'm convinced it's a largely unattended place, for longing prayer in the Christian life when there's a tangible sense of disparity between our reality and the biblical description of life in Christ. Weeping's not popular. Being broken's not popular. Being in pain in faith isn't popular. Being hungry isn't popular. Feeling spiritually poor isn't popular. However, humility a sense of our own spiritual inadequacy and a sense of our desperate need is the soil in which the grace of God does grow. And all these things, the weeping, the brokenness, the pain hunger, are all scriptural. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Paul says that he's in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in people. Christ didn't say if you fast, he said when you fast. And Paul says in Philippians, this is Paul, the guy that wrote most of the New Testament. I have, he says, I haven't already attained this. I haven't arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. His hunger was driven by a clear picture of the reasons Christ took hold of him. He says, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it. If there isn't a central value of crying out in the life of a believer, I would encourage you to re-examine your high calling as a living temple of God, using Scripture and Christ as our example, and to reevaluate our current attainment soberly. 
Scripture actively warns us to be sober in our judgment of our present reality, to notice that it doesn't say you've got everything there is to have. It talks about some of us escaping as through the flames. It it says to think of ourselves with sober judgment and that we have a tendency to think of ourselves as well-clothed and rich spiritually when we are poor and naked and our thoughts are too often, I'm doing all right. But in reality, our prayer ought to be, God, please give me gold refined in the fire. We're called to be the man who beats his chest in humility before God, acutely aware of his desperate need, rather than the one who assumes a high position. We're called to take the lowest seat at the table and be exalted later, rather than to assume that high position. We're called to live in the grounding reality of without Christ, I can do nothing. Without Christ, I can't live the Christian life. I can't produce good and lasting fruit. I can't hold my relationships together. I can't edify others. I can't even control myself on a good day. And I certainly can't walk in spiritual gifts, run a ministry, or produce a hundredfold harvest from my life's work. And although it's good to hear of what Christ has done, it's spiritually detrimental to live like we're most of the way there already. We're called to live hungry, to eagerly desire, to have nothing but what the grace of God would work in us. Weeping, crying out and believing prayer for more can be a display of greater faith, a stronger hope and a surer expectation than parading around as though we've already attained it. I've come to learn that if I assume that I have all God intended for me, I won't ask for anything more. And my acceptance that this is it seems to insult the accomplishments of Christ on the cross. When I consider myself in comparison with him, the author and the perfecter of my faith, the calling and the promises of scripture, I'm not even on the radar. If I'm a part of the body of Christ, I'm lucky to be as significant as a hair on his ankles. If we assume this is it, we won't ask for anything more. He's only begun this good work in us. He's still completing a good work in us. We were only babies on the day of our salvation and it's possible to live out our whole Christian life as babies if we become content and stop crying out there. However, to only weep would be wrong. Weeping is driven by the strong conviction there's more for God that God has for us here and now. We have so much to celebrate in Christ. Here's the celebration part. (laughs) A God who pursues us despite ourselves. Our tendencies to reject Him time and time again. Our prodigal nature and how every generation seems to have to learn for themselves to love Him over again. And how good He is. But He bears with us and He celebrates our progress. He humbled Himself and became one of us among us. And even then we turned on Him again and He took the wrath of God upon Himself so that we might know Him. I love that our God loves to esteem the humble and make masterpieces of broken things and save the worst of sinners. And he took upon himself bruised, whipped and beaten all our transgressions and made himself nothing. I love that it's historic that this servant king lived, died and triumphed over the grave and mocked the finality of death and began the victory procession of the triumphant church into eternal dwellings where forevermore we will be brought into the fullness of our calling and given new bodies worshipping him as those who fully see and fully know. And the English language is placed under incredible strain to convey how entirely fulfilled we will always be. The Bible says no ear has heard and eye has seen, nor mind can fathom the great things he has in store for us. Yet the veil that separated mankind and God has already been torn. And by grace through faith, we're plainly told that he took our death so we could know his life powerfully working 
within us. And Paul beckons us with the faith that you have walk in that. Jesus questions us, will I find faith on earth when I return? And the author of Hebrews, probably Paul again, exhorts us to look to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. And we're about to do that in communion. We're about to look to Jesus as the author and perfecter. Jesus is the temple that we are called to be in all of its glory. He is our high calling. And we can celebrate any progress that we have made, baby steps in Christ, as the new foundation of the temple he's building, because every good thing in us and every perfect gift actually comes from him. So here is where we're at. As we go into a time of communion, we can both celebrate the good He's already working in us, our church and our world. We must celebrate the foundation that's been laid, but we must recognize a lot of it is only foundational and there's work yet ahead. We can cry out for the fulfillment of all that His blood was shed to purchase. We must walk in the good that He has done, celebrating that. But we must also weep, cry out in prayer for the unfulfilled good, the yet fulfilled good that he has prepared in advance for us. We must walk in all we have got while we weep for what we have not. I want to lift up the place of longing more actively in open-hearted prayer before God without viewing it as diminishing what he has done, but instead as honoring what he has done in accepting his invitation into realizing what he has done in actuality. As we come into a type of time of communion, just remembering that God wants to lead us into the fullness of his promises, to be the fullness of the temple to come, the living stones. He wants to impart gifts into us. He wants to challenge motives in our hearts. He wants to form his character in us. He wants to dislodge idols from our hearts. He wants us to lay down ourselves and rights that we've come to think we, we, we have. <laughs> come, let's celebrate what he has done, but let's call on him to finish what he started. It will always be by his grace and through faith in him and not by our own work so that no one would boast. And if we allow him to work, let's hope that we won't be able to recognize ourselves in another decade. We are going to go into a time of communion today, uh, tonight, guys. Um, and in that, just... I guess the crux of the message there is that his blood was so costly and things that cost a lot indicate there's an exceedingly high value on the item that's purchased. And what he purchased with that was us. In God's sight, we are exceedingly, exceedingly valuable. Sometimes I feel like my present reality doesn't match with the value that God places on me. But communion is a reminder that we are worth all of that. We are worth God's shed blood. And my prayer when I come into communion tonight will be God, by your grace, not something that I muster up, but God, by your grace, resurrect your life in me. Let me step into the fullness of actuality and in living out the reality of the value that you see in me, stepping into the identity you've already given me by your strength. Guys, we have exceedingly exceeding value in God's, in God's eyes in his sight. So let communion tonight be a reminder of the full glory of what we are called to be. Let us look to Christ as the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let us look to him in all his perfection and know that that 
That is the impossible standard that by his grace, step by step, baby step by baby step, he wants us to move towards and bring us into a place of fullness um, together. So I just invite the band back up um, as we go into communion um, to lead us in just some quiet tunes uh, while we pull out the communion wafer and wine. If you haven't been here before, just come up and you just dip the wafer in the wine um, and um, we'll give it a couple of minutes before we go into um, singing some more songs of worship to God. Thanks very much.